a pollster was out in front of the United Nations building. And he approached three men, a Texan, a Californian, and a New Yorker. He posed to all three the same question. Excuse me, he said, but what is your opinion of the current meat shortage? The Texan looked at him and said, excuse me, but, but what is a shortage? The Californian responded to him, well, excuse me, but what is meat? The New Yorker said, what is excuse me? <laughs> Seems to fit if you've ever been in New York. Uh, tonight, we're not asking what is excuse me, but a lot of people in America tonight are asking uh, what is a father? That may surprise you that I would say such a thing. But as we go through Proverbs, and, and you know, guys, at times, I, I know this has got to sound like a broken record as we rehash what Proverbs is about. But Proverbs is a book about a father teaching his sons how to live life skillfully. Uh, fathers play a very, very strategic role. We know we're in trouble in America. We know that we are uh, in danger of collapsing from within. And one of the reasons for that is outlined in David Blankenhorn's book that he wrote in 1994 called Fatherless America. I, I'm going to start tonight by giving you some paragraphs out of this book. And the reason I want to do that is that fatherhood, the role and the place of fatherhood has been greatly diminished. Now, we believe in fatherhood. Uh, we, we are proponents of fatherhood. But even we have been affected by the demise of fatherhood that has taken place in the last 200 years. Uh, Blankenhorn starts his book by saying, the United States is becoming an increasingly fatherless society. A generation ago, an American child could reasonably expect to grow up with his or her father. Today, an American child can reasonably expect not to. Fatherlessness is now approaching a rough parody with fatherhood as a defining feature of American childhood. Fatherlessness is basically on an even par with fatherhood. This astonishing fact is reflected in many statistics, but here are the two most important. Tonight, about 40% of American children will go to sleep in homes in which their fathers do not live. Before they reach the age of 18, more than half of our nation's children are likely to spend at least a significant portion of their childhoods living apart from their fathers. Never before in this country have so many children been voluntarily abandoned by their fathers. Never before have so many children grown up without knowing what it means to have a father. If this trend continues, fatherlessness is likely to change the shape of our society. C consider this prediction. After the year 2000, as people born after 1970 emerge as a large proportion of our working age adult population, the United States will be a nation divided into two groups, separate and unequal. The two groups work in the same economy, speak a common language, and remember the same national history but they will live fundamentally divergent lives. One group will receive basic benefits, psychological, social, economic, educational, and moral that are denied to the other group. 
The primary fault line between the two groups will not be race, religion, class, education, or gender. It will be fatherhood. One group will consist of those adults who grew up with the daily presence and provision of fathers. The other group will consist of those who did not. By the early, early years of the next century, these two groups will be roughly the same size. That's where we are right now. This being written in 1994. He continues on in the chapter 1. He says, prior to fatherhood breaking into pieces, and, and I just kind of picked him up in midstream here because he was giving a little history of fatherhood. And his point was that sort of like Humpty Dumpty, fatherhood over the last 200 years has had a great fall. He says, prior to fragmenting, breaking into pieces like Humpty Dumpty, fatherhood in our society spent a long, a long time actually shrinking. Historically, the con contraction of fatherhood both preceded and precipitated its disintegration. Now follow this. Over the past 200 years, fathers have gradually moved from the center of family life to the periphery of family life. That's significant. In 200 years, we've moved, fathers have moved from the center to the periphery. As the social roles for fathers has diminished, so our cultural story of fatherhood has by now almost completely ceased to pertain father. Let me back that up. I'm reading too fast because I don't want to bore you guys with this stuff. Are you following this? Are you getting this? All right. As the social role for fathers has diminished, so our cultural story of fatherhood has by now almost completely ceased to portray fathers as essential guarantors of child and society, uh, societal well-being. That's what fathers used to be known for. Not to be overly gloomy, but in some respects, it has all been downhill for fathers since the Industrial Revolution. In colonial America, fathers were seen as primary and irreplaceable caregivers. According to both law and customs, fathers bore the ultimate responsibility for the care and well-being of their children, especially older children. Throughout the 18th century, for example, child-rearing manuals were generally addressed to fathers, not mothers. Until the early 19th century, in almost all cases of divorce, it was established practice to award the custody of children to fathers. Throughout this period, fathers, not mothers, were the chief correspondents with children who lived away from home. Theodore Roosevelt, in his lifetime, wrote over 100,000 letters to his children. More centrally, fathers largely guided the marital choices of their children. I'm still for that. <laughs> and directly supervised the entry of children, especially sons, into the world outside the home. I'll read that again. Fathers directly supervised the entry of children, especially sons, into the world outside the home. They helped and coached sons in career and education. Uh, most important, fathers assumed primary responsibility for what was seen as the most essential parental task, the religious, the religious and moral upbringing and education of the young. As a result, societal praise or blame for a child's outcome was customarily bestowed, not as it is today on the mother, but on the father. One more. In sum, over the last 200 years, fatherhood has lost in full or in part 
each of its four traditional roles. Now catch this. This is what comprised fatherhood. Number one, irreplaceable caregiver. Two, moral educator. Three, head of family. Four, family breadwinner. As the historian Peter Stearns put it, an 18th century father would not recognize the distance contemporary men face between work and home or the parental leadership granted to mothers or indeed the number of bad fathers. Just 200 years ago, you take your average father, he couldn't assimilate what he would see in our culture today. Can you go three more paragraphs? The result is that fatherhood as a social role has been radically diminished in three ways. First, it has become, in the most literal sense, smaller. There are simply fewer things that remain socially defined as a father's distinctive work. The script has been shortened to only a few pages. Second, fatherhood has been devalued. Within the home, fathers have been losing authority. Within the wider society, fatherhood has been losing esteem. Many influential people in today's public argue that when all is said and done, fathers are simply not very important. Third and most important, fatherhood has been diminished as paternity has become decultured, denuded of any authoritative social content or definition. A decultured paternity is a minimalist paternity. What is he talking about here? Well, here he goes. It is biology without society. As an extreme example, consider the phenomenon of the sperm bank. Fatherhood as anonymous insemination. No definition of fatherhood could be tinier. I have one more paragraph. Consequently, uh, as paternity is decultured, the larger meaning of masculinity in our society becomes unclear and divisive. A decultured fatherhood thus produces a doubtful manhood. For without norms of effective paternity to anchor masculinity, the male project itself is increasingly called into question and even disrepute. That's a lot of stuff. But when a man is reduced to being nothing more than a vehicle to artificially inseminate a woman, then no wonder men wonder who they are and what is their role and what is their task and why are they significant. We've come a long way. And we're going the wrong direction. The Word of God says that fathers are central. The Word of God says that fathers are critical. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Malachi 4? Yeah, we're on our way to Proverbs, but we'll stop off in Malachi. Last book of the Old Testament. So if you find Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, just turn left. And when you get to Malachi chapter 4, 
I, I, I never get over this, that God ends the entire Old Testament. And, and what is interesting is that Malachi 4, verse 6, ends the Old Testament. Then you turn the page, and you've got the New Testament. There are 400 silent years between those two books. God didn't speak for 400 years between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew. What is the last thing that God has to say for 400 years? 4.6, he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Of all the things God could have ended the Old Testament with, he chose to talk about fathers and their children. It doesn't say here fathers and small children. It doesn't say fathers here and their infant children. It says fathers um, and their children. If you're 82 years old, as my dad is, well, I'm, he's got a son who's 55. He, God is concerned about my relationship with my dad. He doesn't want us to be divided. He wants us to be together, you see. And whenever the Spirit of God is at work, he works in families, and he works between fathers and children because fathers and children get divided. It happens. None of us are perfect. We all have issues. We all have things to work through. Um, fathers used to be uh, young. I was talking to my son John last night, and uh, he, he said, you know, Dad, it's, it's, you know, it's really weird, and I said, what's that? He says, it's hard for you, it's hard for me to imagine that you were my age once. I said, yeah, I bet it is. He says, you're 55. I said, yeah. He said, it's really kind of weird for me to think that you were, you were uh, 23. I said, yeah, I, I, I can imagine that. Because, you know, I mean, you view me. I mean, I'm, I've always, always been your dad. But I, but I did used to be 23. And, you know, I had it, you know, great thing was, I had it totally together when I was 23. <laughs> and he laughed just as you laughed. So, you know, uh, we're all growing, and we're all developing, and we're all on the trail, and we're all in the process. Blankenhorn's book is, is really a sobering book. We, we could spend the evening just going through and highlighting his observations about fatherhood. In fact, in fact, I'm going to just do the table of contents. He, he, uh, part two of the book is called The Cultural Script, and he talks about the different kinds of fathers. Um, First of all, he discusses the unnecessary father. Basically, sociologically speaking, uh, the cultural engineers have done everything they can do in this culture to make fathers unnecessary. But see, that never happens because fathers are critical and fathers are central. Uh, then he talks about uh, the old father. You know who the old father is? The old father is the 1950s father. The old father is Ward Cleaver. Uh, the, the old father is Father Knows Best. Uh, the old father is uh, Ozzie Nelson. You guys remember Ozzie and Harriet? No. And you're young. 
you're a young guy. Uh, Ozzie and Harriet. Ozzie had quite a deal. Uh, Ozzie didn't have a job. Uh, you remember that? Ozzie lived a very nice lifestyle. He had a very nice home. But I don't remember Ozzie ever going to work, do you? <laughs> the only thing I can remember Ozzie doing is going down to the malt shop to get a quart of ice cream for David and Ricky. But, see, you take, if you remember, if you're old enough to remember those, those programs that were on television, fathers are represented in a completely different way than they're presented today. And that model of a father uh, is mocked and scorned and ridiculed. Uh, then we have the new father. The new father. If there's one word that characterizes the new father... It's sensitivity. Um, <laughs> I have so much I want to say on this. My dad loved me, and my dad cared for me. Um, but um, when my dad gave me an instruction, he expected me to do it without a lot of explanation. Because sometimes you just can't explain. There are times you need to have conversations, of course, and you explain things. But there are other times you don't have time to explain. It's not appropriate to explain. Uh, my dad would say what needed to be done, and you needed to do it. Uh, that's, true in, uh, that's true in the military. There are times when an order is given, and you just need to follow the order. Uh, there's not time to explain to everybody. There, there's not time to worry about somebody's self-image or, or somebody's uh, level of self-esteem. Uh, you've got bigger issues going on than that particular individual. What's happened in our culture, in, in the family, is that children have become the focus. Children are not to be the focus of the family. The focus of the family is the husband and wife and their relationship, and their relationship with Lord and their relationship with one another. Uh, children are to be trained. Children are to be loved. Children are to be disciplined. Uh, uh, children are to be uh, in a process of maturing so that they don't remain children. Um, uh, new fathers uh, primarily are only concerned primarily with being sensitive to their children. Now, is that a good thing to be sensitive? Yeah, but there are some other things that children desperately need. One of those things being discipline. Now, it, it, is there a degree of sensitivity to a good father when he disciplines? Of course, because you don't discipline every child the same way because each child is different. But sensitivity is not the primary thing. That all goes back to the whole issue of feelings. In our culture, feelings are central, aren't they? Um, are feelings important? Sure. God invented feelings. God invented emotions. Uh, feelings are not to be ignored, but feelings cannot be central in our lives. In John 8, 31, Jesus said, and I'm blanking here just for a moment, 
Um, I'm going to pick it up here in just a second. I'm confident of that. Jesus said, here you go if you abide in my word. It was a little bit of a tape delay there, guys. Just a little three-second tape delay. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you... Our culture thinks that feelings set people free. Truth sets us free. It is the task of a father to impart biblical truth in a loving context to his children. With that setup and with that in mind, let's go to Proverbs 6. Because we see a father um, involved actively. That's what fathers do. They are actively involved in the life of their sons and daughters. Now, last week in the section of uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, he talks with his son about financial matters. Now, he begins to talk to his son about one of the core issues concerning financial matters, which is laziness. Um, Laziness uh, is directly related to feelings. When uh, you've gone to bed at 1.30 because you've had so much to do and you just couldn't get to bed before 1.30 and the alarm goes off at 5. And that's the third night in a row that you've been going on four hours sleep. That alarm goes off at 5 o'clock and uh, you don't know where you are. And you think to yourself, this is great. I've slept eight hours in the last four days. Uh, I get to get up. I get to go fight traffic. I, I've got to go deal with situations and people that I really don't want to deal with. Uh, uh, I'm going to be there probably eight, nine, ten hours. And then I've got work when I come home tonight. It's just, a, gosh, this is great. What a lucky guy I am. Uh, my point is, when that alarm goes off in a situation like that, do you feel like getting up? And the answer is no. You don't feel like getting up. Uh, but what do you do? You get up. Because feelings cannot be central in your life. The way you feel cannot govern your decisions. What must govern your decisions is not how you feel, but what is true. I've said this before about young, young boys, young girls. Um, I mean, when my kids were young, they never, ever, ever wanted to go to bed. Ever. Daddy, can I stay up? Can I just stay up? The kids never want to go to bed. And then when you get them in bed and they go to sleep, they never want to get up. It's sort of a vicious cycle. Now, in order to achieve in life, something's going to have to break that pattern never want to go to sleep, and never want to get up. That's not what you call a formula for success. So it is the role and task of a father to shape the children and train them. See, that's where discipline comes in. Fathers are to discipline their children 
What is the purpose of discipline? To move a child from the discipline of a father so that the child then incurs self-discipline in their own life. That's the goal. So, this is what the context is. He's just talked to his son about financial affairs, but there's a root issue that's deeper than just co-signing for a loan for someone you don't know that well uh, in regard to finances, and it has to do with laziness. He says this, verse 6 of Proverbs 6. He says, go to the ant, O sluggard. That's an interesting term. Uh, Proverbs at times will talk about fools. Proverbs at other times will talk about sluggards. Um, it's interesting here, if you look at 6.1, he's instructing his son. He says, my son, if you've become surety for your neighbor. And, then he go, and he's still talking to his son. And then he, in verse 6, he says, go to the ant, O sluggard. That's kind of interesting. Um, why in the conversation with his son would he, you know, it's as though he's addressing the sluggard. Because it's as though he's laying out the sluggard and speaking to the sluggard and the potential of being a sluggard that's in every one of our lives. We all have the potential to be sluggards. We all have the potential not to get up in the morning. We all have the potential to be ruled by our feelings rather than by what is true. We all have that potential. Uh, what do sluggards need? Slug or potential sluggards. What a potential sluggard. They need a lesson. He says, go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise. Which, having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? Uh, when will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Uh, there, there's a very direct and blatant example of what happens to those who never learn to govern themselves and never get over the propensity for laziness. I grew up watching a man, uh, not my dad, but another man that I was privy to and uh, close to. And I watched this man. I knew his family. I knew his kids. They lived just up the street from us. Um, if you met this guy, you would immediately be drawn to him. He had incredible people skills. He had a personality that was incredible. He, he was a magnet. He drew people to him. It, it, was, it was amazing. This guy was sharp. This guy was witty. This guy was, uh, this guy was funny. Um, and he was just one of those people you like to be around. Um, 
on average, he would sleep until 11, 11.30 every morning. Um, he had a, a pool table at his house, and he spent most of the day playing pool. He watched a lot of TV during the day. Um, his wife would come home from work about 5.30 because um, he was a salesman, but he didn't like to work. So his wife, and see, they had four kids, and so by necessity, his wife, and about every three or four months, uh, there would be a letter and there would be a call that they were going to foreclose on their house. Now, this guy had such tremendous gifts and such tremendous skills that when the crisis came every three to four months and they were going to foreclose on the house, what he would do is that he would suddenly get motivated. And he would go out, and in about four days, he would sell what most guys would sell in four weeks. That's how good he was. He'd write the checks for the past mortgage payments that were in arrears. He'd get caught up. Um, and then he'd go back to his routine. Uh, his friends were the, um, quite frankly, uh, he ran with the leaders of the community. That's the ca caliber of guy he was. Uh, um, the movers and shakers in the town. Uh, guys that were successful. Guys that built subdivisions. Guys that, uh, uh, who, who was the mayor the, the uh, judges in the community. Those were the kind of guys he hung out with because that was the, that was the caliber a guy that he was. But the difference between him and his friends is that uh, they had mastered themselves and he had never done that, ever. Um, he lived this way all of his life. Has he had a great impact on his children? Absolutely. Uh, was it a positive impact? Yeah, you don't know the family, but may I ask, is, it, is his impact, he's, he's now dead, is his impact a positive one? Yeah, you know it isn't. It couldn't be. Here, here was a guy uh, extraordinarily gifted who could not bring himself to get out of bed. Interestingly enough, he served in the, uh, in, in the United States Army. He'd been through boot camp. Uh, in, in fact, he, he, uh, he was rejected because of a physical condition. He couldn't get into World War II. And he did everything within his power to, to, to get by the physical, and he finally got in and was finally accepted. Uh, what, where is it that most guys learn discipline? It's in the Army. It's in the military. That's a great place to send a young boy who's not going to learn anywhere else. Uh, this guy went through that and did pretty well. But you see, it was only for a season when he got back on his own, uh, he couldn't master himself. He was lazy. Um, this is what Solomon does not want to have happen with his son. Every son has the potential for this to happen. Every grandson 
has the potential. So I find it interesting. I'm reading along in Proverbs. And what, is, what does Solomon say? He says, he says, go to the ant. So I'm, I'm looking over this passage. I'm thinking about it. You know what I decided to do? I decided to go to the ant. Here is the 1959 edition of the World Book Encyclopedia. I decided to look up. I don't know much about ants. Uh, I have a lot of ants where I live. Uh, I step on ants. I spray ants. Uh, I drive over ant hills. Uh, I do everything within my power to eradicate ants uh, from my property. After reading this, I almost become an animal rights activist. <laughs> Actually, I don't. Shall we consider for a minute ant? That's, is that not what he tells us to do? He says, consider the ant. When was the last time you wrote a paper on ants? When was the last time you read an article on ants? For me, it's been a long, long time, as in never. Let me give you some blurbs. I, I keep this 1959 World Book Encyclopedia around because this was back when encyclopedias weren't politically correct. They just gave you information. So can I give you a couple of shots here? And we'll deduce some principles here. The ant is one of the most gifted of all insects. Some of its ways are very much like ours. The ant, like man, does not live alone. It lives and works with other ants in large groups called colonies. There's actually a suburb not far from here called the colony. I'd like to know the history of that community, wouldn't you? These colonies or nests, is there a nest, Texas, nearby? Uh, there's some unique towns in Texas. I haven't heard of nest. These colonies or nests are much like our city. Sometimes hundreds or thousands of ants live in one nest. Some of these ants feed and care for the young. Others keep the nest clean or store away food. Still others uh, guard the entrances to the nest. Uh, ants have various tasks. Uh, other ants, catch this, other ants raise different insects from which they obtain a food, someone like sugar. They tend the other insects carefully, much as farmers tend their herd of cows. Several kinds of ants keep beetles as pets. Hey, I'm telling you, it's in here, man. Certain other ants steal the young of other ants and take them home to be their servants. You think I'm kidding. Listen to this. Um, there are ants that keep cows. Many kinds of ants raise tiny insects called plant life, I'm sorry, plant lice or aphids. The brown cornfield ant is one of the kinds which do this. The ants look after these tiny insects as men care for their cows. This, this is unbelievable. 
For this reason, aphids are called, often called ant cows. Aphids live by sucking the juice from plants. Some of the juice is changed inside the body of the aphids into a sweet liquid known as honeydew. Ants are very fond of honeydew. They milk, now catch this, they milk the aphids by tapping and stroking them. The aphids squeeze a little of the honeydew from their bodies and the ants eagerly lap it up. Ants sometimes protect their cows from insect enemies by building little sheds of grass or earth over them. In winter, they keep the eggs of aphids in their nest. When spring comes, the ants carry the young aphids outdoors. They place the aphids on plants, which have plenty of sap to be made into honeydew. Uh, there are many other kinds of insects which live in ant nests. Beetles are the most common guest of ants. More than 300 kinds of beetles have been found living with ants, sharing their homes and their food. That is bizarre. I say all that to say this, and I quote now, ants are called social insects. This is because it is their nature to live together in colonies. The ants in the nest help one another. They both share their food and their work. By the way, ants have two stomachs. One stomach is for the obvious reason that you think of when you think of stomachs, uh, the digestion of food. The other stomach is a storage stomach. They store food for other ants in case those ants are not able to find food. And when an ant is not able to find food, they go to another ant and with their antenna, they insert it into the other ant and they pull food from that storage stomach of the other ant. They are social insects. Now stay with me here, because there's going to be a quiz at the end of this deal. There are three classes of ants. Now, what did Solomon say? He said, go and consider the ant. There's some lessons here. There are three classes of ants in every colony. The female ants, or queens, the male ants, and the workers. I'm going to skip over some of this. Um, Getting down to the workers. Among some kinds of ants, even the workers do not all look alike. Each group of workers has its own special job to do. Some of the workers act as soldiers. The soldiers have very big jaws, which they use for fighting and for defending the nest. Other workers have large, flat heads. They're also called linebackers. No, I just threw that in. <laughs> These heads are hard and are used like doors to block up the entrances of the nest. The ants of a colony never quarrel among themselves, but they fight fiercely to protect their homes and their young from enemies. Sometimes two worker ants belonging to the same nest may seem to be fighting, but they're actually only having what we would call a friendly wrestling match. Neither ant gets hurt because ants are social Insects. There's fascinating stuff here. One more. Army ants. You know, there's all kinds of harvester ants, parasol ants, honey ants, army ants. Uh, there are fire ants. Army ants are clever engineers, for they can cross narrow streams 
in safety. The leading ants climb tall grasses or twigs growing at the edge of the water. They cling to, catch this, they cling to each other and swing down in a long chain to the opposite bank. The main army of ants then passes safely over this bridge of living ants to the other side of the gap or stream. Ants are social insects. We are social beings. We are not designed to live in isolation. We are designed to live together. Um, you, you know, the uh, kind of the epitome of the Old West frontier stories is the, uh, you guys remember Hondo? Remember that movie? He, he's, he's the, uh, I like Louis L'Amour. I, I like his stories because they're, they're, you got a good guy, you got a bad guy. And the good guy has got to take a stand against some bad guy that's threatening the whole community in some way, shape, or form. And at some point in every Lou Lamore book, the good guy has to fight the, the bad guy. And the bad guy is always bigger. And the fight scenes usually last three to four pages because Louis Lamore was a boxer oh, when he was a young man. Uh, but they're good stories and they're clean stories. Um, uh, he wrote Hondo, and one of the things, there are themes when you read Louis L'Amour. One of the, th like, he says certain things, like one of the things you learn when you read Louis L'Amour books is that when guys would sit around a campfire, you never stare into the campfire. You know why you don't stare into a campfire? Because if someone comes up on your camp and they're going to attack you, if you turn, you can't see anything because you've been looking in the fire. So you see, if you're smart, you never look into the fire. You look away from the fire, and your eyes are already adjusted. Another thing, is, here's one of the themes of Louis L'Amour's books where he's wrong. Louis L'Amour, throughout his books, his characters have a philosophy, and the philosophy is never trust anyone. Never. The only person you can trust is you. You trust anyone else, and they'll let you down. That's where this lonely, independent, self-made man idea comes from who doesn't need anybody. You know what? We are social beings created by God. We need other people. Um, that's why we have families. Because we're not to live in isolation. We're not to live by ourselves. That's why we have churches. What does the scripture say? The scripture says in Hebrews, uh, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. Why is it that we get together? Because we need to be together. Uh, what does the scripture say? As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. It's always interesting to me that when the enemy wants to pick off a man, what he does is he gets that man into a position where he's isolated from other men. Uh, wolves will often uh, isolate a particular older cow or an older animal, or a young, new animal out of the herd. They'll isolate them. They'll cull them out. Why? Because they have no protection. Uh, we are designed to be in relationship. Uh, in that family, and you know the family is the smallest unit that God has created. Uh, every family is a small civilization. Quite frankly, every family is a small church.
The father is critical in that situation. Uh, the, the father is the central figure in that social structure called the family. There are two things you can't do by yourself. Uh, you can't get married by yourself. At least not yet. I'm sure some federal judge will change that here before long. The other thing you can't do by yourself is you can't live the Christian life by yourself. What, what is the issue that so many people who are single, what is the issue that so many single people deal with? What's the main issue in their lives? This is interesting. Temptation, sex. How about loneliness? loneliness. Not that those other things aren't issues, but loneliness is a huge issue if, if you're a single guy, one of the things you deal with is loneliness. If you're a, a single woman, and if you are, you shouldn't be here. <laughs> we would have another class for you. Um, what do single women deal with? They deal with loneliness. You, you, you know what's interesting about singles groups in, in Christian churches across the country? Is that Singles are very, very lonely. Um, and as a result of their being so lonely, I, I remember a pastor in Dallas years ago whose uh, ministry had developed a very, very large, very large singles ministry. And I remember talking with him, and he was telling me that uh, he was pleasantly surprised to see this thing grow, but at the same time, it's created a huge overload of counseling because there is more sexual immorality in that singles ministry than he can hardly, hardly imagine. Because, and he said, he said, there are so many lonely people. And when you are that lonely, you are particularly vulnerable to sexual temptation when you meet someone who you think has the same value system and you would both agree that this is wrong yet there is such a connection that the guard goes down and there you go isn't that interesting um, now what does this have to do with ants and what does this have to do with the passage where he is talking to his son about uh, not being a sluggard. Um, here's what it has to do with it. Uh, just as ants are social insects, we are social, social creatures. Uh, if an ant, if one ant does not function in a responsible way in that colony, all of the other ants suffer. In the same way, when a father does not function in a responsible and appropriate manner, the entire family hurts and the entire family suffers. It is the job of a father to provide for his own. Paul told Timothy, if a man does not provide for his own, he's worse than an unbeliever. Um, that is the normal, natural course of life. Men are to provide for their families. When a man doesn't provide, there are all kinds of issues. 
um, uh, the, the two great social programs of the 20th century, FDR came up with the New Deal. And, um, you know, so all kinds of projects were, were being built. Great dams were being built and, and uh, national parks and lodges. And it, it was, it was a, a program to put people back to work, all right? In the 60s, Lyndon Johnson came up with a concept called uh, what he called the New Society. And when, when you study what they attempted to do there by social engineering, they attempted to reach, they were going to, uh, they were going to eradicate poverty by throwing more and more money at poverty. And what happened was, uh, in, in structuring those programs, they actually created a problem that was bigger and more massive than the one they were dealing with in the first place. Because in attempting to socially engineer a way out of poverty, they began to pay. And they began to pay based on how many children somebody had. Uh, I'm sure without thinking, and I'm sure without thinking through the consequences, they made it convenient for people to be able to collect money based on how many children they had. And as a result, especially in the inner city, in the African community, when I talk to my friends, when I talk to Tony Evans, when I talk to Crawford Loritz, when I talk to Wellington Boone, when I talk with these friends of mine who are African-American pastors, these guys all point back to those programs in the 60s. And the negative effect they had on the black family uh, in terms of allowing men to be irresponsible and not make commitments to marry. What's interesting, and if you read Blankenhorn's book, what happened to the black community in the 60s is now happening to the white community. The level of illegitimate births among the white community is absolutely staggering. What's happening is more and more children are being born out of wedlock. What does that mean? That means the father is not there. The father, you remember those four terms that Blankenhorn talked about historically that fathers were to have? One of those responsibilities that the father was supposed to do is that the father was supposed to be the moral educator in the home. But if the father isn't in the home, you've got a problem. One of the ways that the father educates is by his life. So this is why Solomon is talking to his son about learning to overcome his feelings. It's amazing. You know, most, of you get, most of you guys get up and go to work. You learned to do that a long time ago. Uh, that's not an issue. You're going to work and you're going to work hard. And that's a great thing. But isn't it interesting how many men operate on their feelings in other areas of their lives. Men will leave their wives because of how they feel. Uh, Men will walk out on a marriage because of how they feel. They don't feel understood. They don't feel this. They don't feel that. And see, that has tremendous implications because fathers, by their very presence, fathers are to be the moral educators. Fathers take initiative. Fathers take responsibility. So with a son, what do you do with a son? What do you do with a daughter? 
but they don't want to get out of bed. You make them get out of bed. What do you do at night when they don't want to go to bed? You make them go to bed. Children need structure. Children, and, and not only do they need structure, but they need to see the structure modeled for them. What I'm saying, guys, let me, let me pull this together. He says to his son, consider the ant. When I look at the ant, I'm reading the stuff on ants. You know what hit me? Ants. Ants are all part of a team. We're all part of a team. You couldn't pay me enough money to be a coach in this culture. Um, now, a lot of coaches, a lot of NBA coaches make a lot of money. But, you know, I watch those guys, and they, and they, they seem to age quickly. They, they make a lot of money, but they got a lot of stress. I just read in the paper this morning, Rudy Tomjanovich, who's the new coach of the Lakers, may not be, possibly he's not going to coach the Lakers much more. Well, how long has he been coached now? Four months? Why would that possibly be? Because, you see, the goal of a coach is to get a group of young men to operate as a what? Team. But it's becoming increasingly rare in any sport because... You see, the idea of being a part of a team is becoming foreign. What you, you see, it's all about the individual. It's all about me. It's all about what... And see, that doesn't work. When one member of a team drops the ball, you got a big problem. See, that's, that's what the military does. The military... It amazes me the Army's new slogan is an army of one. I'd really like to think that through and sit down with the guys that came up with that. There's no such thing as an army of one, is there? But see, they're appealing to a culture that is self-centered, that touches a chord with them. See, when one member of a team lets down, the whole team suffers. Uh, in his book, Good to Great, how many of you guys have seen that book or are familiar with it? Best business book I think ever written. Tremendous book. Uh, what Jim Collins did was that he did an extensive study of some of the best, some of the greatest companies in America. He found some characteristics of these companies. Uh, you know what the first characteristic was? That the top guy, the CEO, is what Collins, this is not a Christian book, it's what Collins calls a servant leader. Hmm, where did that come from? But what did Jesus say? If you're going to be great in the kingdom, you must become the what? The servant of all. When you read Good to Great, he talks about these different companies, and he talks about the guy who's the CEO. And across the board, these guys, uh, they're not flashy. Uh, they don't issue, uh, you know, press releases about themselves. They, they, they're, they're just, um, uh, they just show up and they do the job, and uh, they encourage others, and they're not looking to... Um, get their names in the papers. Uh, what they're looking to do is they're looking to, to model servanthood to the other people and give them an example. They're moral educators by their own servanthood. That's what a father is supposed to be. So in this book, Good to Great, that's the very first thing. These great companies, they got a guy at the top who's a moral educator. By his own life, he's a servant leader. This is not a Christian book. Maybe his second principle is this. Get the, these great companies, you know what they've done? 
he, he calls it, get the right people on the bus. Very interesting concept. He says a lot of companies get together. You know, you're going to start a company, right? What's our purpose? What's our vision? What is this company all about? He says the, the greatest companies we've seen, that's not how they started. They didn't start with a purpose, and they didn't start with a vision. You know what they started? They got the very best people on their bus. The quality people that had the same values, believed the same things, that were servant leaders that didn't who, they got the very, very best on their bus, and the ones who were less than that, they got them off the bus. They assembled the very, very best team that they could. And then after assembling the very, very best team together, they decided, now what the heck are we going to do? It's just backwards of what you'd think. Why is that? Because teams are critical. So what kind of people do you want on the bus? Somebody who is self-serving? Somebody who always wants the ball? Somebody who won't pass? Somebody that has to have the credit? Somebody that comes in late and goes home early? No, that's not who you want on your bus. You want somebody you can trust. You want somebody you can count on. But you see, it begin that kind of team begins at the top by the character of the coach and by his life, he's a moral educator. So we go, you know what's amazing to me? This works in every aspect of life. I talked with, uh, I had a conversation with a guy this week who's on a pastoral staff in another church. And uh, he's contemplating leaving. And the reason he's contemplating leaving really goes right to the guy at the top. Because there are some issues, staff-wise, that the guy at the top does not have the courage to confront. He won't take them on. He's a pleaser. Those are some hard issues that are going to involve some very difficult conversations. There are some people that are on that staff, that have been on that staff for 12, 13 years. They need to either change or get off the bus. The guy at the top won't morally educate. He'll say the right things, but he won't apply the principles. And as a result, and I've known the church, I've watched this church, probably the very best guy that they've got, probably the guy that is the glue that holds the whole thing together, is probably going to leave because of a lack of leadership. Because, see, it's a team. And when someone doesn't do their job, when someone doesn't pull their weight, can I say something about this? That is a sluggard issue. The sluggard. Now, the guy that I'm talking about at the top, I know this guy. guy loves the Lord. He loves the scriptures. Uh, he gets up every morning. He goes to work. He loves his wife. He pays his bills. He pays his taxes. You wouldn't think of this guy as a sluggard. Can I throw something out? This guy is a sluggard in doing the responsibility that he doesn't feel like doing. He's a sluggard because it's uncomfortable. Nobody likes having difficult conversation. You don't like that? I don't like it. But somebody has to get off their butt and do it. Somebody has to lead. But it's not comfortable so you stay in your comfort zone and instead of leading and instead of giving direction and instead of educating you're a sluggard see this principle goes deep 
we have what we call our comfort zones. And is it not true that uh, so much of life is uh, coming to grips with being responsible outside of where you're comfortable? Uh, that's leadership. That's being a father. It's taking a risk. It's, uh, and you say, well, I'm not good in this area. You're probably not. See, that's why you need the Lord. But he'll go with you. And he'll walk with you. Uh, is it not interesting in Matthew 18 when you got a brother in sin? Let me look at my watch. I'm done. In fact, I'll just stop right now. It was interesting. Uh, I'll just wrap it. In Matthew 18, when it talks about a brother in sin, if your brother's in sin, you go to your brother. If he listens to you, you want him. If he doesn't listen to you, you go get two or three. And they go, you, you go approach this guy. You're trying to save this guy's life. If he doesn't listen, eventually you have to take him in front of the whole church. Now, um, it's not comfortable to go to a brother. It's not uncomfortable to go to someone who's in sin and making wrong choices. They won't listen. You go find two or three. Have you ever tried to go and get two or three to go and talk with someone who's in a very tough situation? Have you noticed everybody wants to go with you? Nobody wants to go. That's very uncomfortable. If you read that context of that passage and you keep reading, there's a verse. You know what the verse says? It says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. Did you know that's what that verse is about? See, we use that verse when nobody shows up at prayer meeting. <laughs> well, Lord, you're here if there's only two or three. That's not what that, yeah, he's here if two or three's there. Yeah, you bet. For prayer. Yeah, but the purpose of the verse, the meaning of the verse is, uh, hey, where two or three are gathered for what purpose? To go do something out of your comfort zone that nobody wants to do. When you stop being a sluggard in leadership and go do the hard thing, I'll go with you. That's leadership. And his hand will be all over you, and he'll bless your life. Let's pray. So, Lord, thank you. This sluggard stuff goes a lot deeper than it would appear on the surface. Lord, we, we all have areas that we're good at and we're comfortable in. But sometimes, Lord, you stretch us. And as fathers and as uh, uh, men and as uh, pastors, as some of us are in here, and as... Uh, business guys and uh, professionals and we're all part of a team sometimes we got to step out and we don't want to do it we want to have a little more rest a little more slumber we want to be passive a little longer that's not what you want help us Lord to lead help us to be men we're acutely aware of our weaknesses but may we become convinced of your presence and of your strength so that we can walk in faith and do the right thing and build our team and build our business and build our church and build our family to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.